Hello, my name is Matthew Kidman, and welcome to the latest episode of Success and More Interesting Stuff. None of it really makes sense. A young man from Queensland teaching the world about pizzas. Don May was born in Rockhampton, Queensland, moving around as a child before landing in Redcliffe in North Brisbane. He trained to be a teacher, but somehow got hooked on being the best pizza delivery person in the district. The next step was to become a franchise shop owner of a small chain called Silvio's Dial of Pizza. Within a few years, Silvio's merged with Domino's Pizza and May was at the helm in Australia, a meteoric rise from a delivery boy. Don Doe was just getting started. Domino's was cooking its competitors and in 2005, the company listed on the ASX. May and his ambitious team, with the support of its major shareholder, fast food king Jack Cowan, were preparing to take on the world. Using the capital available from the share market, Domino's Australia secured the licensing rights for France, Belgium, the Netherlands and Luxembourg. A massive step. Telling the French they should eat more pizza was an interesting challenge. While it hasn't all been cheese and champagne, Domino's has become the number one pizza group in France and has subsequently grabbed the territories of Germany and Denmark. In 2013, May thought it was time to explore global pizza domination by securing the Domino's license for Japan. If he thought France was hard, how could an Aussie convince the Japanese to eat pizza? The company has added Taiwan, Malaysia, Singapore and Cambodia to its footprint. While it has been a whirlwind ride, there has been some indigestion. Battles with disgruntled franchisees and the emergence of multiple food delivery companies has really tested the leadership of May. Now he has global inflation to contend with. Never to shy away from a challenge, May seems as energetic as ever. Welcome, Don. What was in the water in Rockhampton, or should I say, what was on the pizza? A lot of famous people out of Rockhampton in Australia. There's high court judges, there's Olympic champions, there's some business people like yourself, Bevan Slattery. Yeah. What's happening in Rockhampton? I don't know. I was born there. I don't really have any other memories of it all, but most of my uh, youth was from Cairns to Papua New Guinea, then back to Redcliffe. So uh, yeah, obviously I've visited Rockhampton since. It's interesting, isn't it, that so many people have come out of there. There must have been something in the water. Yeah. <laughs> That's the interesting part about what seems to be your childhood, that you moved around quite a bit which most parents these days say, well, that's unsettling. That's not good for a child. Did, did you see it that way? In hindsight, obviously. Yeah, no, not at all. Both my kids went to Timbertop for that very reason down in Victoria, because I thought that it's the complete opposite today, that we live gilded lives. Everyone's paranoid about kids walking the streets and leaving those gated fences in our communities and so on. And I think there's so much creativity and there's so much life experience that all the cotton wool we're putting around our kids is not something I grew up with. You know, climbing volcanoes in Papua New Guinea and Rabaul was the centre for Yamamoto where he ran World War II from as a kid. We'd just be in and out of most creative, exciting experiences. And then growing up on Redcliffe, both my parents worked, so I had my pushy and I'd ride all over Redcliffe every single day going doing different things as a kid. And so much of that's lost now and it's so unfortunate. Yeah, I'm not sure how we get it back. It seems like the world's going in a single direction. It does, but I, I do think, you know, like an example with my kids going to Timber Top, it absolutely transformed them. You know, that 12 months, if you want hot water, you've got to chop your own wood. No technology <laughs> except for in the classroom and you're going to do a marathon in your last exam at the age of 14 or 15 years of age. And it's tough parenting in the beginning, but 
worth every single piece. Well, it was good enough for King Charles. He got to the top somehow. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think he only went there for a little while. I'm not sure he did the whole year, but anyway. But, yes. th- but they've made sure they've told everyone he went there. So the exactly. good branding, yeah. as you would know a lot about. So as a kid, you, you sound like you did have a lot of energy. Was that you went out to the world rather than let it come to you? Yeah, exactly. And, and I think fortunate enough to, my father was a rock and roller before he became a businessman. So I think that helped in my childhood. And my mum was just so supportive. And then growing up in those communities, I mean, Papua New Guinea between 1975 and 1980s was the period of independence and it was still um, a different place to what it is today and so just felt like every day was an adventure and as a kid it was safe to be able to do so. Yeah that, that's interesting a lot of people would say somewhere like PNG isn't that safe but you obviously felt brave enough or secure enough to go out and meet people get introduce yourself to different ways of living. Yeah, it, look, it has changed. You know, we went up there literally in the year of independence of 1975 and, and into Rabaul, which barely exists now um, from a volcanic eruption. So, you know, the Tailai people, very peaceful people, island type people. And by 1980, life was changing in New Guinea, though. And, and it's, it, it's unfortunately gone in one direction since then. But it was a very different place in my childhood. And I have very fond memories. You just mentioned your dad was a rock and roller. What did he do? He played guitar. He was in a band called uh, The Stilettos. He borrowed the name The Big Bopper from one of the US fames. Yeah, he's in the Queensland Music Hall history here for his early years, Festival Hall and Cloudland. And so when I grew up, I mean, the way my mum and dad met was uh, he was also a jive instructor. And so my mum went for a dance class and here I am. <laughs> sounds, sounds like an artistic family. Where, where did business come into it? Well, my dad was a salesman, and one of the reasons to move up to Papua New Guinea is he worked, first of all, in the cocoa business, uh, and then in a company called uh, Bali Merchants for a gentleman who was a famous Australian um, in those days, uh, John Dowling, who was in the New Guinea goldfields and cocoa copper and retail and Mitsubishi, and, and my father ended up running a big arm of that, and then... We either became nationals in 1980 or or returned home to Queensland. We came back to originally in Kelvin Grove. I actually went to boarding school for six months in between in Charters Towers, which was also one hell of an experience. And boarding school when you're in grade seven. Didn't see my parents for six months. We then moved back to Brisbane for the rest of that year and then on to to Redcliffe. You sound like you'd be happy to be out of Charters Towers. Didn't sound like it was the friendliest environment for a young guy. It was just different. I mean, going to a boarding school when you're that young, you know, you know, when you're grade seven, I think it's definitely, you, I tell you what, I grew up a lot. Yeah. You learn a lot about humility when you're in dorms with, you know, year 12 all the way down to year seven. I can tell you I grew up a lot <laughs> on maturity. I can share that experience. I did a couple of years of boarding school and it teaches you to be street smart. It, that's exactly right. You know, I, I, Cause I there's a lot of holes like, to fall down. Exactly. You know, I came in, I was a, I was a swimmer who'd swum on the Pubbany swim team, the bow swim team and so on. And I got to, bigger, wider Australia again, and I thought I was better than I was, and I quickly realised <laughs> to put, pull your head in and, and listen a lot more. But you were competitive? Oh, definitely competitive, yeah. All, growing up, always played sport. I had a passion for art as well. Like, that's actually my teaching area was, was uh, my first teaching area is visual arts, followed by economics and social sciences. And was your dad a good salesman? I would say so, youthfully. I learned a lot from my parents. I'd say my father as a businessman, but he was my, my father, I would reflect on as blamed a lot of things that happened to him, governments, environments, and so on. And my observations was that that wasn't the most positive way to live life. And my mum, on the other hand, always very thankful of what she has and the opportunities. So seeing definitely the hard work characteristics of my father and his creative side, but then I always feel, felt sorry for my father. He's still alive, but I feel sorry <laughs> for him sometimes that blames external influences for results. And that's not what we do. Now, I suppose to run a successful business, you've got to get past that. 
Yeah, and we are in control of most things. You know, the pandemic, no. But then what are the features you are in control of? You know, dramatic inflation, no. But what are we in control of and how do we, you know, we often say we're all in the same water with our competitors, but how do we design a different boat? How do we be in a better boat? I, I give the classic example in a business. If it's a, you know, you hop in a lift and someone says, oh, it's raining. And I go, how fantastic. That's great for pizza sales, right? Because the rainy day means liquid coupons. Or it's a beautiful day. And I say, well, how fantastic. It's a beautiful day. You know, like in a pizza business, you can't lose. It's either a beautiful day or... It's always an opportunity. It's always an opportunity. It's, and I think if you, if you're able to approach uh, life that, that you are actually in control in business of most factors, things do come from outside, but then they hit, no, normally they hit the whole industry from outside. So how do you then navigate and, and swim against the currents? Can you take us to when you went to Redcliffe? I think Kelvin Grove moved down to Brisbane. You were going to be, as you said, you navigated the world and explored the world on your push bike. But as you left school, you were going to be a teacher, an arts mm-hmm. teacher, but you ended mm-hmm. up working as a pizza delivery boy, man. Mm-hmm. And yep. that, unlike most other people, that's where you pivoted. Can you just talk us through that period and what you were thinking? Yeah, probably you step back one little step forward is around 13 or 14, I realized I had an entrepreneurial streak because I set up a business, a window cleaning business, and we would just literally walk up to the Redcliffe retailers and say, look, would you allow us to clean your windows and you can tell us what you think we're worth? Sometimes it was nothing and other times we were paid and we slowly built a business of regular clientele who paid us and then we did gardens and and then I started working at Coles on the weekend. I ended up running the fruit and veg section on the weekends because in those days we closed on a Sunday and so, you know, we had to close it all down, clean it all down after running that day. By the time I got to college, I wanted a second job and one of my friends from high school was running the local Silvio's Pizza and he needed delivery drivers and I love driving. So I took that job and here I am 35 years later. Still like cars are here. I do. I do enjoy driving. And it's what's really interesting in our business, not many people drive for two years. You know, most delivery drivers are around for six to 12 or 18 months. And, and I actually delivered pizzas for nearly two years and learned the business from the ground up and had a hell of a time actually. Really enjoyed it. And looking back, what did you learn then that wasn't, what, what could be done better that wasn't being done right? It's interesting, but in those days, you know, Silvio's was really struggling. You know, um, in this country, Pizza Hut educated just about everybody how to eat pizza in the 80s and late 70s. And we were scrimping and saving ourselves to success and compromising everything in a sense, what I would call in business, saving yourself rich and then learning the ability of how to grow yourself rich, as we would call it, which we call now high volume mentality. So once I was presented with a PL and and the very first time I saw one, it was just like, wow, this is how you make money. Here's all the cost inputs. If I take the top line up and control these, you make profit. It's so simple. The business, we can make it as complicated as we like, but you have this big area called food, this big area called labor, and then these other much smaller costs. And the more you took the top up, the fixed and semi-fixed costs were the same and more just flowed through to the bottom. And it was like magic to me. That was something so simple and and I'd never... Well, my old boss, one of my old bosses said, there's only two parts to a business, revenue and costs. Everyone mm. knows how to get the cost. Not everyone knows how to get the revenue. Exactly. And... That was the other thing is that I quickly learned uh, my first year as a store manager. So I, I deferred my last year of uni and I, um, and then I, I took a manager's job before I thought I'd do a different degree. And I became manager of the year that year because it was a very simple business that we had a thing called Top Shop. And if you won Top Shop every week, that accumulated to be the manager of the year. And the Top Shop, because we were going through phone rooms, is that if a customer called the phone room with a cold complaint, you lost five points, a missing item, a late service, you'd lost points. Well, if they never called, you're obviously doing a really good job and you end up winning, right? That was the first measures of customer service. 
And so we just strategized why we never delivered a late product, why we never delivered a cold product, and why we never missed an item and just put very simple systems in place. And that business grew. It was a business that was losing money when I took it on as a store manager. In fact, they were going to close the Redcliffe store down. By the end of the year, it was a profitable store. And then I got offered a supervisor's job and I started supervising and then I became the head of operations. And then we bought Domino's and I headed up Domino's in Sydney for a couple of years while the founder of Silvio's ran Silvio's and then eventually you can't run two pizza brands and we merged them together. I argued, I was a small shareholder by then and I argued pretty aggressively that it should be Domino's to compete on the world scale with all the world learning. I went out and franchised. Can I take you back before we get on to Domino's and just that incentive scheme that was in place, that top shop, and that really incentivized you. It did the job by the sounds of it. Was, was, there a, was there a money reward at the end of it or was it just bragging rights that you were the top shop? Yeah, we used to get bonuses and I actually don't remember because they were quite small on the performance of the business. But for me, it was, and when you're that age, for me, it was more about success. I just got excited that that you looked after customers and more of them came back. And it was so much fun because it wasn't that hard. You know, these are very simple principles. Just make a pizza, deliver it quickly and make sure, you know, you time it right so it's never cold. And building teams and learning because I played sporting teams and the pizza business is so measurable. Everything was so, you know, you, you could see it, it could hold it. And up until that point, I hadn't been really in charge of much that I could fully be part of a team to control and get an outcome. That simple measures that you're talking about that seem so crystal clear to you to make it work, that seems to be the building blocks that you've taken for the rest of your career. Yeah, I, I often tell people that we run DPE today, Domino's Pizza Enterprises, the way I ran my first franchise and my learning as a manager. You know, the way I look at it today, we've got two regions of the world. It sounds really complicated when you've got 13 markets, but I see it very simply in my head. We have two regions, just like having, when I became a franchisee with 17 stores at one point, north and the south, well, we have APAC in Europe. We have six primary markets and seven supplementary markets that feed off that. And the CEOs are all the store managers and the supervisors are the regional heads. And we have specialists who run marketing and so on. But one of the dangers in business is businesses get in the business of running business and they forget they're in the business of creating products and services. The cleaner, the, the more simple you keep business, you're not putting all this energy into the business of running business. You put more energy into the business of creating those products and services. So taking it down to that shop level for everyone. Correct. And reminding everybody and it's one of the biggest negative inertias you've got to deal with as you get larger because inevitably there's parts of your business saying well you know whether it be for a board or for other members of the leadership team where it's just like well we're getting big now we need more more what you know <laughs> and and some of it's true some of it is you do need more sophisticated uh, software and structures to, to keep it leaner in a sense and don't over stuff but the core principle you know all the great i'm watching um, elon musk at the moment take on twitter and he just he creates things that look so complicated and simplifies them into just very easy common sense speak. Yeah, you know he's not getting up there and giving you a Harvard business story and all this consultant story. He's making it very simple, and it's amazing to watch. It'd be interesting to see the outcome with Twitter. But you know what he's done with Tesla and and so on, and what Steve Jobs with Apple, and what um, Howard Schultz did with Starbucks and Bernard Arnault of LVMH. They make the most complex look so simple, and that's part of the secret. Yeah, and in my game, Warren Buffett's the same. Done exactly the same because we, we like to make it complicated. It makes you feel a bit better, I think, but it doesn't always work. Can you fill in a gap for us, that ability to become a shareholder in Silvio's? Who, who owns Silvio's? How many shops were there around Australia? Who else was an owner? And how did that 
end up in Domino's, just a little filling in those few gaps. Yeah, so a company called SoMad, which the, the Cowan family owned, were the largest shareholder. And then there were two smaller shareholders originally in the founders of Silvio's, which were Silvio Bavacqua and uh, Fel Bavacqua. And in that period of um, 93 to 95, as more or less a retention, because I was becoming a significant operator in the business, um, I was given a small shareholding as... I mean, the business wasn't worth a lot, so it was. <laughs> in fact, I ended up selling that sh- those shares for some royalty waivers and a laptop when I left to have my own franchise. That's how much those shares are worth. Ironically, that all changed when I came back in using my stores to buy equity, which is another part of the story. But um, that was just more of a retention shareholding originally. And then, how did you? come to be running Domino's or be part of Domino's? So the first step is we bought Domino's out of its third liquidation in Australia in 1993. Because we're two brands, the founder of Silvio's still ran Silvio's and I went and ran Domino's for two years and got a hell of a lesson. I moved to Sydney because uh, Domino's only existed in Sydney at that point, predominantly corporate stores. That's when I learned a lot about this gray self-rich, savvy self-rich in a bigger scale. I, I got to tour and meet franchisees in the US who would have nine stores, but I'd meet a franchisee with 250 stores. And the entrepreneurial spirit, the charisma of some of these Domino's operators who had built you know, very profitable business, making a lot of money. And I was this young, budding entrepreneur, and I would sit in presentations or tour stores and just get captured by this story of what could happen. And so when we decided we had to join the two brands together, I fought really hard that Domino's hadn't failed in Australia because it was a bad concept. It just hadn't been applied through an Australian lens. You know, Americans often traveled in those days and failed with the brands because we look in Australia like Americans. The biggest mistake we make as Australians often is because we watch 78% of our content as American. When an American walks into our presence, we communicate to them in American initially. But Australia is a, a socialist country and proudly so in many ways, you know, and we have proper wage structures. You don't have team members working for tips on very, very low wages. You know, you have high weight. In fact, in our 13 countries today, Australia is the highest wages and therefore productivity, skills training. We don't eat Hispanic food as well back then. We especially ate no Hispanic food. You know, our, our influence is European and, and Asian. So between taste, labor models and understanding, but yet the operating model, the whole grow yourself, how to grow yourself, how to take care of customers. And there was one franchisee in the US, his name was Phil Bresler, who ended up being the operations manager. And he had 20 stores that were turning over a million dollars a year each, so $20 million. And he was making 20% profit, $4 million. And I went, okay, that's what I want to do. <laughs> There's another incentive. <laughs> yeah, well, when we merged the two businesses together, back then there, there wasn't a lot of multi-unit ownership in Australian franchises. And I bought the Morayfield Caboolture store on the 1st of January, 1996. And with the intention that I'd get to 20 stores over the next 20 years, that store became overnight the second biggest store in the Domino's world. And um, before I knew it, I was buying my second, my third. In fact, my third store grew 600% in its first year and won a Domino's Worldwide Award for the first time a store had ever grown that much. And I became the international manager of the year for my Morrowfield store. And Were you borrowing money to buy these stores? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yes. So there was a lot of financial a- risk attached to it. You must have had a lot of confidence oh, yeah. in your own ability to do it. Well, got a hell of a lesson on the first five years as well. I mean, borrowing money on three-year loans, 12, 15% interest, full P&I payback in three years. So we talk about a three-year payback. I had to do a three-year payback. So I used to talk, by the end of this five years, I was averaging a, um, a 2 million EBITDA and I was paying 2 million in EBITDA in um, principal and interest. So I was just <laughs> on the edge. But I was building an immense amount of equity real fast and it created a lot of discipline. There was no fancy handbags you know, for my wife in the cupboard. There was no fancy cars in the garage. 
it was me driving a pizza car and building this great business and having a time of my life. All, all into the business. So when you merged the two, you, met, you mentioned the Cowans, which is Jack Cowan, I presume, mm-hmm. who is Hungry Jacks and well-established fast food person in Australia. When you merged the two, Domino's and Silvio's, can you give us an idea of who owned what is a percentage of, of the merged entity? Jack was the clearly, or the Cowan family, so mad, was clearly the largest shareholder can't remember specifically. What I can tell you is that in 2000, when Grant Burke, who's now a director on our board as well, and one of our biggest shareholders who had eight stores in Newcastle, and I brought my 17 stores in, we were able to use the equity to buy 20% of the company, so 10% each. And then we bought out the last shareholder and we owned 25%, so 12 and a half each. And the Cowan family owned the other 75% in 2001. And that's when I became the CEO of Domino's Pizza Australia. And the next four years must have been very fast growth because between 2001 and 2005, you listed on the share market and that would have been a whole new world again, but you've got to be a certain size to get onto the share market. Well, picture that the company before the year that I bought in in 2000 made a million dollars in EBITDA and it had 174 stores. Now, my franchise made 2 million alone. I was making more than the company. And when I became CEO, picture Pizza Hut was 427 stores. A company called Pizza Haven, that was a Pizza Hut ripoff, had 284 stores. We had 174, and then there was another company called Eagle Boys with 168. In two years, we became the market leader. Wow. Pizza Hut closed the 130 stores, and we opened 100-something stores. And everything we'd learn as franchisees, we applied to the bigger picture, as I'd learned as a store manager, and we applied to the whole company. And it was just extraordinary. Then we entered New Zealand, and we became the leader in New Zealand not long after that. By the way, when we did list in 2005, we were still losing money in New Zealand at that point. We were still in the building mode and we were losing money in Melbourne and and yet we were listing this business because by and large, it was still on the right trajectory as time has proven. I remember that clearly. Do you remember what your profit projection was in the prospectus? Oh, I don't, yeah. I I can't recall (laughs) either. I should have looked it up before we spoke. but might have been 17 million EBITDA, 20 million EBITDA, something like that. I'm really weird. I don't often look back in too much at the, those sort of elements because I'm always very focused on what my head's always in what we're achieving. We do have a philosophy in our business. No one deserves to change the future until they can articulate what we've done in the past. So you don't break good things when you're in an innovative culture like we are. But then I also have no redundant memory. So once it's done and dusted, I don't remember in my head that you need all the brain power for the next phase. Look forward, not not backwards. Yeah. Just before we leave that period when you listed, Jack Cowan, did you form a relationship with him and was he helpful or was that kind of a distant, just a shareholder who didn't really participate in the business at all? So we had a relationship with the Cowan family right back, and me with Jack right back till the early 90s. I met Jack because he was a shareholder of Silvio's too. He was the biggest shareholder in Silvio. So I met him, I think, in 1989, same age as my dad. Probably hates me saying that. But he's been like, since then, since 1989, he and I have had a conversation, a relationship. And, and you know, in those early phases, worked closely together. When we listed, he wasn't our chairman. And so he had to behave as a shareholder. And we used to just brief him. So that was a very strange period until he became chairman again, because with ASX laws and our chairman was very strict that I could only ever go and meet with Jack at every half year, four year in AGM. So that was a, gosh, how many years that was, eight, nine years, was a very strange period because, you know, Jack's been a mentor and a great visionary for our business on the way these things work on a bigger scale. So yeah, that was a strange period. And what else was different listing? You've got different masters all of a sudden, different stakeholders in the company, passive shareholders, but ones that have got great demands about growth and expansion? First of all, the biggest benefits of listing was the exposure. I mean, we were a small brand still. We would 
put our results out and get millions of dollars worth of free media because it wasn't long before everybody actually had an opinion on Domino's. Whether they were making it up or they were right, it didn't matter. They talked about Domino's constantly because it was this new thing that was in the market and there was no other fast food company listed in Australia in 2005. So that was the big benefit. The downside was the distraction as a small cap business because we didn't have IR and so on about the amount of energy that we would still spend with shareholders trying to teach them about the business. But as a small cap, it was still mostly positive. It was until we became a big cap that then, and our multiples were so high that you started getting contrarian views that also then wanted to make their views right in the press and in the public, which is a market. That's, you know, that's how it is. That was a lot different learning because we hadn't been exposed to that while we were a small cap. I just think I remember being in New York, seeing an investor once and they said, well, what do you think about this Domino's? And, and I said, well, they're fast growing. They're taking a fair bit of risk. They've gone overseas. They're very good operators, a lot of energy. Let's see how they go. And he said, well, they can't be doing that well. It's expensive. I'm shorting it. <laughs> so it had reached New York where people had different views. Yeah, that's a market. That's how it works. And um, But that was a new learning for us because we weren't used to, like I always say to our team members, is that if something's said in the media and it's right and you don't like it, suck it up, you know. But when something's said in the media and it's absolutely just made up and wrong, it is hard to just let that lie. Even now, you still got to suck it up, <laughs> you know, like, because you prove that you're right with time and moments that are short, you pass through them. Today, when there's negative media that isn't right, in a lot of cases, we ignore it because it's, time will prove whether it's right or wrong. And you hadn't been listed too long before you decided to go off to Europe. Obviously, that was an opportunity within the Domino's group, being able to get the licenses for Europe. Big move. Can you just talk us through your thinking and your ability to take on that kind of step? which obviously comes with risk. Yeah, so we did a business model called One Degree of Separation. Should we remain an Australian-listed business with more concepts, which is, you see, young with KFC, Pizza Hut, and so on. Or are we good at the Domino's business? And our One Degree of Separation would be to operate Domino's in other geographies. And by that time, growing up in Domino's, you're part of a lot of meetings around the world. You're travelling you know, regularly, and you're spending time in with other master franchisees. And Grant and I in those days, and even Jack, we formed in the early days, before listening, we formed views of what we thought. The Domino's business is an incredible business. It can become such a, a high margin business where more than one stakeholder gets to win. You know, franchisees can win, the company can win, and even the US can win as part of all that partnership because there's that much margin in the business when you get it right. And we decided to be more f- our one degree of separation was not another concept where we wake up, are we the Colonel today or are we the Domino's today? Which one are we? We just decided we were 100% all in pizza and we acquired the three markets of the Netherlands, Belgium and France. Basically, the Netherlands of Belgium was thrown in for free. The real purchase price was France, 8.7 million euros, uh, about 12.4 million Aussie at the time, losing money and not paying royalties yet. <laughs> and the Netherlands and Belgium are the same population as Australia and New Zealand. So to have that thrown in, one of the things I learned as a franchisee, when you're sitting down with a territory map, in those days, we used to get a marker pen out, get that marker pen and draw it as far as the master friend, the person selling the franchise will allow you. Because in our business, territory is worth everything. That's where all the goodwill lies. And so when somebody's offering two countries, if you take this one, we'll give, you know, have these ones. Absolutely. They're the steak knives. And as it turned out, the Benelux in that first decade, was the most successful part of Europe. It's where we made most of our money. And yet it was the free part. And in fact, half our leadership around the world today has come out of the Benelux. So isn't that extraordinary that that 
foresight pays that way. And I still think that now. I remember that clearly. That took up a lot quicker and it seemed to fit the model better. The people on the ground, the customers responded to the product a lot quicker. But the French, we all know, are very particular about their food. And I do remember a lot of conversation at the time that why would an Australian group that sell pizzas to the French who like a lot of cheese... There's a lot of discussion about how much cheese you should have on your pizza. Go to France and think they could make it. Was there any doubt at the time? Oh, definitely a lot of doubt. Within, I'm talking about. Yeah, well, of course. I mean, you still, you've got to be objective. You've got to look at all of the potential risks and there was some doubts. The big picture is France is the second biggest pizza market in the world by total aggregate consumption. So to get that as a jewel, French people do like chains. They do like organized uh, businesses and so on. And, you know, France has been a rocky road for us. We're still now the second biggest fast food company in France by store count. All of our challenges, if you're talking to our French team, they're going, my gosh, there's only McDonald's and then there's Domino's today in store count. But of course, we, the way, we, I mean, we're bigger than McDonald's in the Benelux <laughs> by store count. So yes, but however, and you're a public company and you have higher expectations and we've set ourselves bigger targets and we've often achieved in France. Big opportunity, still a big opportunity. And in fairness, we've still executed quite well relative in that market. Yeah, it's been a tough market, but you've really battled through and the size of the market now is enormous. Would you describe your business now that we're talking about going overseas in a meaningful while outside of ANZ? Are you disruptors? We've talked about disrupting markets through technology, but it seems like to me Domino's Australia gone overseas and disrupted through product, price and technology. Is that a correct assessment, disruptors? It is. We've never gone to a market as the market leader, not even one. And our first nine, we bought four. We're still settling on three in the next couple of weeks. So they're new. But the first nine, we're market leader in every one of them. And sometimes by a lot. You can add up all the chains in Germany and we're still bigger. We're the only national chain in Germany. You can add the two chains together in Japan and we're bigger, both in store count and sales. We arrived in Japan as the number three player. In some markets, we're five times bigger, like here in Australia, and we weren't the market leader in day one. So there is, and we think it through in a model called high volume mentality. And that it's quite simply, it's this, is we're entrepreneurs when we travel. We're not Australians because there's nothing more offensive than it to any culture to say in Australia, in Australia, in Australia, when someone looks out the window and says, it looks a lot like Japan. And so our competitors are Japanese, our competitors are French, German, Dutch, and so on. But the high volume mentality is if you remove every mental and physical bottleneck in a business, sales and profits are exponential. And mental and physical bottlenecks is all of the things you've taught yourself about the market. And consultants are the worst of this because consultants can only measure what they can measure. And I'll never forget, we had a gentleman who we called him our chairman advisor in Europe because he was French and he'd worked in consultancy for years. He said, the best thing I love about DPE culture is you don't just look at the size of the market and then decide a pie. You, you reinvent the size of the market. You see it in a different way. And you still do it strategically. You don't do it just picking air, you know, put big targets in the sky. And he said, it's just such a refreshing mindset because in France, well, we we can't be successful because we don't sell beer and wine. All right, we'll give you beer and wine. It's actually not what's going to make you successful, but in your minds, it's another barrier. So let's at least get rid of all your barriers and then focus on what really matters. And then, you know, you get on from it from there. And, and I have yet to have been to a market where I don't stand in front of the team for the very first time and talk about leadership. And you know that 99% of the room are looking back going, but we're the exception. We've been here a while. We've been here for three decades. You might have been good somewhere else, but this is different. And you've got to go the journey of respect because there are differences that are cultural, but the business model's the same. And I have yet to see that business model not work. And I suspect those people who remain doubters over time leave the business. They do. Good people change. 
they win and exciting things happen. So it's one of the most fun parts of my job. That's what I do all day, every day is sit in meetings, removing mental and physical bottlenecks. Is it capital? Is it people? Is it just belief? And then how do we come at it from a different way? Because we're not prepared to sit in a room and say that that's just as it is, that we will fail now. We will just be blocked. This is, you know, because time has proven that that's not the case. Before we leave Europe, because you're still growing there, you've just not long taken on Denmark, another territory, but sales circa one and a half billion, big business. What's the future for Europe? There's not much growth in the continent itself. It seems to go through cycles. It it's, looks like it's going into another recession now. There's a war. It's a tough market, even though there's a lot of people. But as you look at Europe as a group or as a geography, where do you see it, say, in 10 years' time? Is, that, is it a lot bigger now then? A lot bigger. One of the things that people misunderstand, so a lot of these markets are the unloved markets of the old world. Like, you know, everybody's talking brick nations. It's almost like fangs in technology. There was the bricks. And in all those early years, you know, we bought some of, we bought the pizza businesses in some of the most successful business friendly cultures in the world. Japan, it might surprise people, but is our most business friendly market to operate in. Say, for example, in France, we still only cover 25% of France today. We only cover about 20% of Germany today. So that means that there's all, we're the leader, we're the biggest, there's nobody as big as we are. And we've proven that people want to eat our product. And yet we only cover such small pieces. The other thing that the market often doesn't know when they look at our business, long investors know this like the back of their hand, but the targets we put in the market are milestones. They're not the end game. The ANZ ones probably are at one point, you know, at 1200 stores because they've been upgraded so many that they're probably at capacity at about 1200. But look at Japan. When we were 287 stores, we said we'd be 650 and everyone went, there's no way you're going to get this. We, they doubted us and that's fair enough until we prove it. Well, we're already at 950 and we're on our road to 2000. If you say to me that a thousand is the end road in Germany, you've got to be kidding. The Germans eat far more pizza than Japanese. You know, you've got 84 million people, but we also are realists. We don't, you don't sit there when you're at 350 stores and say, we're going to be 2000 stores. You say, look, our first milestone in every way, just to get basic coverage of the country is a thousand stores. And can you turn the Europeans or the geographies you're in Europe into what Australia looks like? We're advertising that we'll probably dig deeper into that business. And, and so I'd be extremely surprised if all the markets that you see us operate today are, are milestone the way they are, except for Australia and New Zealand. The rest, I think, will be bigger. But we have to prove that. The milestones are the milestones, as I said today. Let's go to Asia and particularly North Asia with Japan, the land of sushi and sashimi, not the land of pizza in most people's minds. What That license came up. It was up for tender and Domino's Australia decided we, we can make it work. Similar process at a management level. Why do it? It's obviously another big risk because it's it's a one it's another language altogether. It's a different culture. It's not a pizza culture. Elite's pizza originally came out of Europe. Yes, correct. So the first thing is it wasn't the sale. We created the sale. So we went to Bain. Bain owned it at the time. So then we knew that they would at some point would want to sell it. And we said, why don't you stay in with your 25? We'll buy the other 75. And what you get for the for the 25 will be worth a lot more than if you try to sell us you know, on a relativity basis in years to come. And so we created the sale. Originally, Phase one of promise to shareholders was market share. And market share was even if we don't, don't grow any consumption, we'll get to 650 stores just based on driving carryout because it had been pure delivery. So getting the stores from the back streets to the high streets. Japan has been through three decades of deflation until just now. It was the only place in the world where every time a lease came up, the rent was negotiated down. I'd never seen that before in my life. The rents in Tokyo were lower than Brisbane. The wage rates in Japan are lower than in Australia materially, and yet the prices are a lot higher. And so even if we just stole share, it would, could be a great profitable business. 
And the ambition was that was what we said that would be what we can promise. We will still share franchise as well, release the capital back to shareholders. But then the ambition would be if we could educate the Japanese market to eat more pizza. And one of the things that that's noted in Japan is because it's still 124 million people, you need about a thousand stores to break through to awareness of a brand. And the biggest pizza company had any of it got to 540 stores. So we always thought to ourselves, what happens at a thousand stores? And can you build a model? Because we were basically a Tokyo, Nagoya, Osaka business. And today we've got a model that's successful in every market of Japan. So it's that journey of being in the business and constantly doing high volume mentality. What's the mental and physical bottlenecks here? What, what's holding customers back and learning about things like authenticity that, you know, you're a foreign business. You've got to bring something to me. Is, is really important um, to the Japanese uh, culture. And but then there's lots of contradictory things like, but I don't really eat a lot of bread and flour. Rice has to be in every meal. Well, over time, we create pizza rice bowl. That's a breakthrough product and so forth and so on. So in my business, my two favorite businesses of the future are Japan and Germany because they're just so potentially big and they're so potentially disciplined societies to build on. We're lucky to have them. And Don, what you say there, if, if it takes that amount of stores to break through into the conscience of the fast food consumer in Japan, the thousand stores, you're talking about you'll get to 2,000. Does that mean that Japan can become a powerhouse in terms of earnings, given what you talked about, costs against revenue? You know, often when I look at people's perceptions of our business, I think they undervalue Asia. If you put it into three segments, Australia, New Zealand, Europe, and Asia, I think people completely underestimate because they're fixated on the idea. We've been in Europe long enough that people think, oh yeah, they do eat pizza anyway. Everyone forgets when you first met us in those days, yeah, they eat pizza, but they're not probably going to eat from an Australian American brand, are they? Like they eat pizzas, like as in what you see in a little pizzeria. And I think people are over that now and they get it, but there's still a blind spot for a lot of investors that, yeah, but Asia's different. They don't eat pizza. Well, they didn't eat hamburgers 50 years ago either. You know, squishy and bread I, with meat I, in I it. Know, that was not I good. know Starbucks, um, one of their most profitable places is Japan and they didn't drink coffee either at one stage. Absolutely. Correct. If you can call Starbucks coffee. I do. I'm a big Starbucks fan. So any company that can take a product that once was free and turn it into 7 and $8 cups of coffee, I think is a good retailer, even though Australians have a bias against it. It's not a fait accompli that you just get this, but if you constantly pursue these questions about what holds us back you, and you just keep pounding away at these things, we've had a history of breaking through. Let's go to some of the issues that are with you today now that you've got the footprint because beyond Japan, you've obviously gone to Taiwan and then more recently Southeast Asia, which are different markets again. One of the things that Domino's have done, which you've pioneered, is that delivery mechanism, the speed to market. As you said before, you don't deliver a cold pizza. Very stringent on times. There's no room for error. We get your pizza to you. Otherwise, we cop it in terms of financial liability attached to that. So can you talk us through, because the world in delivery has changed quite dramatically, especially over the last couple of years. It's accelerated where everyone's ordering in now, the Ubers of the world. So where where do you stand? Do you still think you're at the cutting edge of food delivery? Yeah. So when we listed the business, we were still coming through the decades where delivery was in decline. And the only way to grow our business was through takeaway. So by the time we got to 2005, 2006, where we went into digital, most of our business units were about 70% carry out and delivery was the small piece that had just been dropping away. But digital pivoted that because it started to solve all the reasons why you didn't use delivery, right? We invented Pizza Tracker. So that was way before Uber, no sort of transparencies. You know, here in Australia, we invented and, you know, always on value, pizza store in your pocket, all these sort of solutions. You know, I can build my own product how I want it, not just, I can't remember on the phone how, how you, what's your menu. And that began the journey of reversing that tide. And then the aggregators have come in and enabled all of the non-tech 
QSRs and restaurants who couldn't get into the delivery business as a platform. And one of the things that shareholders who didn't understand our model, we bet against us, was the aggregators would eat our lunch. And they didn't understand that the aggregators had created a new tailwind of enablement and we were still the best in that space. And an aggregator is not a competitor. Our competitors are still the other QSR plants, McDonald's, KFC, Subway, and so on. It had enabled them into there and so it widened the pie. And they were shifting business away from their core restaurants and so on. So customers are moving across it and at a higher cost. The more we focused on our our mission, the more it's just driven. Our fastest growth part of our business is digital delivery today. And our fastest growth business in this last half was inside the aggregator. So aggregator sales globally since the pandemic are down 10 or 20%. And across the board, we've grown our share in that aggregator. So our business is bigger and it's because we do all the delivery. We're still the most efficient. So as they're taking cost up at a far greater rate than we are, we're winning share in the aggregators because it's just another marketplace. Whether you're in Facebook or Instagram acquiring an order, whether you're in any of the YouTube or Google products or whether you're television and print, these are all different marketplaces and you've got to have a different strategy for each. I look at our business today and I believe we've probably never been more focused and certain of who we are. You know, our mission is to be the dominant sustainable delivery QSR. So to summarize that, COVID in particular has got everyone educated to deliver or or order and get it delivered. And within that, even though it seems more competitive, it's turned the customer towards you because you're the best at it. Voila. (laughs) <laughs> That's exactly what it is. And it's the thing that people least understand. And and so around 2017, internally, we really, really started focusing our game plan. We, we call this the age of delivery. And, you know, we started shaping all this because up until 2017, we were still a little distracted. We thought, well, maybe we should look at other concepts. So we're looking at chicken and sandwiches and everything else. And then because we were really good at tech, we started building cloud kitchens in our business because we thought we could do other businesses integrated into our assets. But all of that just distracted us. So we threw all that out, stopped looking at other things, focused all I ever think about it and my team think about every day is about the next delivered order and why when you think of all of that momentum, because delivery was already in growth before the pandemic, that just shifted it up, readjusted since then in the last 12 months, but still materially higher than where it was uh, before the pandemic. But you know, if you look at the big analyst reports, there's a really good analyst, John Glass, 50% of all retail products will stop, probably be delivered by 2030. And when we used to say that, it was like 3%. Well, we're now already in the 20s, you know, and you've got markets like um, China and 30s, South Korea, and so on. So the trend's there. What will, what will stop the trend? A couple of things. Not enough human beings to deliver the number of packages. So one of our competitive advantages, how do you do more orders per hour than anybody else? Because then you can pay more per hour and get more drivers. And we've got parts of our business doing that. You know, quite simply, if you're paying $20 an hour and do four deliveries, it costs you $5. Well, if you can do five deliveries an hour, you can pay 25 on the same cost base or six deliveries an hour and so forth and so on. And our ambition is to get to five to seven deliveries an hour per store and pay more than anybody in the market and own this business. And because the downside is that what we've seen in North America in the last 12 months is frozen pizzas have risen a lot because deliveries charging too much and giving bad service as an industry and chasing the customer away. And that's what kills the age of delivery is if, if, you know, because there isn't enough people. With those goals in mind, being the most efficient, most deliveries, along with the delivery services that we've seen, the aggregators, there's also been the gig economy, the dangers around it, drivers are at risk. How do you manage that component? 100% of our employees are paid employees fully insured workers' compensation, superannuation. And that's something very proud of because in the delivery business, you need the certainty. The variability of workers, as soon as it rains, 
we boom inside the aggregators because all those gig economy workers, oh, it's raining at that day or it's snowing in some countries, or whereas our drivers turn up because they're paid employees. So that's a competitive advantage to be able to have those time slots locking people in for because most business is predictable in our business. You know, people are habitual and, uh, but, but weather isn't, meter events aren't and so on. And those impacting, well, the gig economy has a nightmare with those sort of things. Getting the pizza there, that's the main aim to deliver it hot, be better than anyone else at it. There's a certain amount of risk attached to that with the people delivering it because they've got to do it at a speed, they've got to do it efficiently. So the first thing is we don't ask our drivers. They're not the element that's fast. It's all the other processes. Our GPS driver tracker was invented first and foremost originally to track speeding and harshness of driving. So that's something that we work very hard to reduce incidents. If you remember the Launchpad GPS driver campaign, it was all about that. It was about safety for the customers. Um, I remember the CEO of Apple Australia wrote a letter about it saying, this is a good example of technology being used for the right reason. And so that's really important to us. Safety is just so paramount. And because we also control our team members, we can train them. In the gig economy, they can't train their team members because they're not employees. So we train our people, put them in uniforms. So it's the investment in the people and the systems that are going to win you the day. Yes, that's that's what we believe. It's a whole product, service and image. Everything at Domino's has been designed to be delivered. Most of the stuff in the aggregators is not. It's our drivers. They're in our uniforms. They're trained in many cases through the world. They're on our vehicles too, on electric bikes or electric scooters. Australia is the exception with cars, and, but that's changing rapidly. So, you know, from the, the product that, that's designed that way, the service, because we're integrated, our people, you know, that's value. Product, service and image divided by price is value. And that's a key part of uh, playing to win. Now, can I switch to another issue that's been with the company for a little while with the franchisees? There's been issues over time. There's been a class action. You've been sued, which is not unusual for a franchisee business because there's a lot of participants, a lot of stakeholders. Yours has been very high profile given the size of the business. And as you said, the first fast food company to be listed in Australia, so you can't stay out of the limelight, as we talked a bit about earlier. As you reflect back on that, do you wish it had turned out differently or you've handled it differently? Or do you think you've done a good job there and worked your way through it and continue you to work your way through it? Yeah. So when we grew really quickly, the thing we have to take responsibility for is that we externally franchised. Because it's a capital light model. Capital light model. Where Domino's model globally has always been internal franchising. You start as a pizza delivery driver like myself, you get the opportunity to own your own stores. When you externally franchise, people feel you obligate them to the business. When you grow up in the business, you feel obligated to be part of the business. And we take responsibility that in the very early stages when award modernization happened and rate wages ran really quickly, it was unfortunate that a small minority of our franchisees chose to do the wrong thing. Now, in hindsight, it was a horrible experience because we were one of the first to detect it. People forget this. We found it. Mm-hmm. We terminated those franchisees and made the team members whole. Because it was the early days, we were the poster child for that first $5 million. For all those other retailers in Australia who stuck their head in the ground and pretend it wasn't happening, I think we've heard hundreds of millions of dollars of underpaid wages. It definitely started a flood. <laughs> yeah. So do I regret that we certainly franchised and allowed this to happen in business? I do. Do I regret, you know, we dealt with it urgently, took all the pain? No, I don't, because it was the right thing to do. And what, what kind of shape do you think you're in today with your franchisees? Oh, in a really good shape. I think the, the, the first thing is that that particular was a small number and then the media made everybody feel like it was the whole business. When you're the size we are, on any given day, we're at risk of green mail being a franchise business. And that's not in Australia because we're still such a high profile. One franchisee can make the newspapers in Australia. That doesn't happen in most places of the world because there's so many franchise networks and they're not public. So that's more green mail and topical conversation. But I think today you don't see our share price move on subjects like that. The class action is not a franchisee class action. That's a class action where somebody's taking an opportunity to look at one element. You know, very, very clearly we followed all of the due courses to have our agreements, our EBAs registered. 
negotiated with the union, taken to fair work through a commissioner, certified, tested by the ombudsman a number of times, followed all due course. But there's a technicality that's being challenged on in hindsight, which we obviously say, well, we did everything right. This is this is not right. So that's in the courts at the moment. But that's not a franchisee class action. No. That's not even a team member class action. That's a funder class action. <laughs> that's what that is. Team yeah, and, and then normally yeah. they put up the flag and wave and say who wants to join and they go from yeah. there. So, look, these things, unfortunately, being public, it's even worse in North America and parts of Europe for, for other companies that are listed. It's it's an unfortunate part of being a business and listed, and we've got to work constantly work hard to make sure that you know, franchisees are whole and profitable, our team members are whole and profitable. As you heard me say earlier, our intent is to pay our team members more. It's not to pay them less. That's our model to do that. So all part of the journey and growing up and becoming a larger company and making mistakes and learning from those. And has it been stressful, not only that, but growing the business now that you've got a $5 billion market cap company? It was a bit more, I know, a year ago, but so are a lot of other companies. You've got thousands of stores around the world, literally around the whole world. Is that stressful? Does it weigh on you? Is it tough living? It's exciting, but there's also a downside, I imagine. It's really interesting. When you're sort of one of the founders of creating a business, you have different emotions. For me, most of it's fun. Like people say, you travel so much. You're always in, I said, they're like, they're our team. I can't wait to get to be in France or Japan. They're some of the most fun things. What I do is that I genuinely block certain things out because I have a team that look after that and their distractions and that professionals should manage and they're not part of the product service of the business. The real value of this business is creating profitability for our unit economics through great products and services and teams. So I live in that world and thrive in that world. But of course, being a, the, ultimately the, the buck stops at my desk in the moments when it isn't fun and you just have to face reality, you got to deal with it today. The fortunate thing for me is that I do have a good team and probably 90% of my life is out there creating great products and services and franchisees. Just to stick with that before we get on to, I might try and give you a chance to predict where the business will be in the future, but recently you came to the end of a five-year management contract and you've just announced that your AGM, you've re-signed, but you've done it slightly differently this time. It's it's almost like an evergreen that you, it's not for a fixed term, It's you can give 12 months notice. What, why did you do it that way and what does that tell us about your thoughts on the business? I'd sign a 10-year agreement. <laughs> every, every agreement um, has to have a clause for shareholders and for you know, and normally they're equal, right? If it's a two-year notice period, then there's a two-year payout. So 12 months seems pretty fair. If shareholders want to get rid of me, that seems fair. And, and if I realise that I'm no longer adding value to the business, it seems like that's a good notice period. My personal intent, I've been here 35 years, I'd like to be here at least 50, maybe longer, as long as I can be effective. I don't live in fear of that. If I realise or the team realises, or shareholders realise, I'm ineffective. There's been always things in the back of my head, I've never got to do them, and I probably will never get to do them. And that doesn't really matter. For me, if I can be here that long, I will, so sign me up for 15 years. So it's just, why keep putting these milestones and keeping them topical in the market? And what we've learned as a as becoming a mid-cap, or whatever you want to call our size, is that get rid of noise that's irrelevant. Be very clear on intent. The intent is, I want to be here as long as the other stakeholders want me to be here. I genuinely do not tell anybody that. Health providing and all the other reasons. So just make an agreement that telegraphs that to the community. Because my five-year agreement had a 12-month termination as well. So what's the point? You know, for the deadline on something, it could still be either party could terminate with 12 months notice. So yeah, it's a lot of what you see is voyeuring into the market. Why don't we give guidance anymore and give outlooks? Because three to five-year outlooks get people 
away from half-yearly focuses as deeply, still there, but nowhere what it was, say, five years ago, that the long onlys that are in our stock, or even if people are shorting, they're looking at these trends and just it's easier for management to run and not be, do the right thing for the bigger picture. Like you're not in the US where they do a quarterly, makes it even harder. So I'm, I'm glad that we don't operate that in either. It's, it's, it's terrible. Just the final issue at the moment is obviously inflation. It's reared its head after decades of being dormant. Obviously, it's impacted your business with wars and droughts and floods and various things globally. How are you dealing with that? You know, definitely the the last quarter of the last financial and the first quarter of this financial year were challenging for us for two reasons. One was in Japan and Europe, we were rolling the numbers from the COVID tailwinds that we have. But on top of that, we were hit with force majeure contracts with inflation because many of our business partners walk in the room and say, look, I can't supply you today at that price. I'll go broke. Our franchisees already have retail prices in the marketplace. So if we pass that straight through to them, they would go broke. So we're the meat and the sandwich in those those quarters. And as well, we, we're also rolling with softer comps versus the previous. So that was challenging. The good news is what we void to the market in August is we said, look, number one, we're through that by October. And two is we think that we would have had our inflation pass through properly now and better cadence. And that's why we, at this AGM, did a really, we'd really ever presented a month. We said, look, a month's not a trend, but this is what it looks like. And we think that is what the year looks like. So yeah, isn't it interesting that 35 years in, you still get hit with things you don't expect and you've got to get a new muscle memory. Fingers crossed. So a couple of predictions to finish up on. You've given us the 15-year timeline to get you to 50 years at, at Domino's. Well, hopefully longer. That's just <laughs> well, a that, little that, flag. Yeah. That, that's a, that's a, just on the way through. How many stores and how many geographies do you think you can have in that kind of period? Best way to predict the future is to focus on what's going to be constant when you're young, you boldly go out there and say, oh, we'll be flying drones tomorrow because that's what the technology roadmap says it probably could do. We've really focused on is, are people going to want a pizza slower in 10 years from now? Are they going to want it to be out of whack on price and quality and, and so on and, and really double down on the constants? And so if we do that, then by nature, you know, economics are strong because customers are rewarding our franchisees and store managers. We have more stores. So I still think that the three to six percent same store sales and our eight to eleven percent store count in a three to five year window is still quite realistic. This next twelve months, we're not actively pursuing more countries. We've just taken on four new ones, with three to take on in the next few weeks. We've got so much organic growth in that. It's really funny because a lot of people go, "Oh, how many stores are you going to open?" I'm saying there's very few people in the world that are going to open five hundred stores this year. Well, between acquisition and, and organic openings, I mean, this is big growth. And you've got to consume it. You've got to manage it in all of those geographies. So this year, a lot of organic growth, a lot of buckling down, and then take another look in 24 at what other geographies, or 25. Well, it doesn't sound like- just so much growth. doesn't sound like you're going to stop too soon. No. No. Congratulations on the first 35 years. Good luck on the next 15. Could be even another 35 years. And it seems to me that maybe you've got out of the shadow of your dad in that Rock and Roll Hall yeah. of Fame. People know you. <laughs> it's gone now. <laughs> yeah. Thanks very much well for said. joining us today. Really, really Thanks appreciate so. it. Enjoyed it. Thank you.